This is Renew Church OC. We're a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for listening. I'm Pastor Wilson. Join us on our Facebook page to watch our Sunday service at 10:30, and join our Zoom watch parties to meet our community. We have watch parties for every life stage to help you re-socialize after being stuck at home for a few months. There's a bunch of other links to give you access to our events, small groups, and to invest in our church community. 2020 has been surreal. I think we're on trauma as we process a pandemic, racial injustice, and a recession. It's like we're living in three bad movies. We are walking through the Book of James in our how-to series because we need His Word to give us wisdom and direction in this time of chaos. Over the next two weeks, Pastor Wilson and Pastor Dave are sharing about how to use our privilege. In God's kingdom, it is the poor that are rich in faith, and it's actually the privileged of this world that are impoverished in their faith. What an amazing way to look at privilege through the lens of Scripture. I hope that you enjoy the sermon. Morning, Renew Church.、Uh, I'm so glad to be with you. I know、uh, you guys are at home. I'm here, but、um, I trust that. Uh, the message today will be of great help to you.、Uh, we are looking、uh, in James chapter two. We're in the series、uh, in James. So if you take your Bibles, turn there, and、uh, let me share my testimony with you. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents were very devout believers. They loved the Lord Jesus, and they sent me to Christian private school from elementary school all the way to high school. And I remember my parents took me to a Billy Graham crusade. And at 11 years of age, I went forward and I prayed to receive Jesus Christ as my personal Savior,、uh, with many thousands of other people, and、uh, I remember that distinctly. Now, my high school years, I would term as very rebellious.、Uh, I was、uh, into partying and drinking and uh, fighting. Uh, I committed acts of immorality,、um, vandalism,、uh, all that. Was in my high school years, and my mindset was a pursuit of popularity. I wanted to be the most popular person、uh, at my school. I wanted to be the most popular person I knew.、Uh, I was always pursuing、um, and main, trying to maintain、uh, this popular lifestyle. But all the while in Christian school, I was excelling、uh, in my classes, especially my Bible classes. And、uh, you know, I took Bible history, and because I have a mind that really enjoys history, I did very well, top of my class.、Uh, I understood systematic theology; I really got into that.、Uh, I would memorize my Bible verses perfectly. I mean, I really enjoyed that. It was probably one of my favorite classes was Bible class. Well, one day, my high school math teacher、uh, pulled me aside, and she said to me, "David, are you really a Christian?" And、I remember that took me back. I mean, I hesitated, and I looked at her and I said, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "Well, when I look at your life, I don't see Jesus. When I look at your life, I don't see transformation happening." And I remember being angry. I didn't show it to her at the time, but I was furious. I mean, I went back and I was talking to my friends, and you know, I said, "Who the blankety blank does this person think she is?" You know, I resented everything that she said. How dare she judge me? 
I went to church every, uh, every Sunday. Uh, I was doing great in my Bible classes. I understood systematic theology. I mean, I understood Bible, uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Testaments. I've memorized scripture. Who is she to tell me that I'm not a Christian? And so a few weeks later, I got my friends together, and we egged her house. You know, Didn't tell her then, but that's what happened. Finally, all the rebellion um, that I had done in my life uh, was actually um, found out and discovered. What I sowed, I reaped. And I was expelled from Christian school because, of course, Christian school has a, a policy and a conduct that you're supposed to follow, and I wasn't following those things. Well, my uh, Asian parents responded by beating me. You know, that's what Asian parents do. And they were angry, and rightly so, and I remember getting beaten. And I remember, uh, in the heat of that moment, I decided that I was going to run away from home forever. High school kid, I was going to run away from home. I was going to live at my friend's house. And so I packed a suitcase. And I remember, uh, in packing it, I threw a Bible in there. I don't know why, but I just threw one in there. And I remember taking that suitcase, I remember walking uh, away from my home. I was going to leave and never come back. About a mile out, I stopped on some bleachers, and I, I, and I took out that Bible. And I don't know why, but I turned to Romans chapter 6. I just had this feeling that I should turn there. I didn't know what Romans 6 said. But as I turned there, I remember reading these words. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? I remember that, that arrested me. I remember I stopped there and I felt like, whoa, is God talking to me? So I kept reading on and on. And when I got to Romans chapter 7, it says, the good that I want to do, that I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And I remember again the conviction that I was under. And I, I, I remember um, it was as if the Holy Spirit was speaking directly at me, this is your life. And I began to weep uncontrollably. And I remember I kept reading. I kept wanting to know, you know, what else God was telling me. And when I got to chapter 8 and verse 1, you know what it said? It said, therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it was at that point that I realized what the gospel was. It was at that point that I realized that I needed a Savior for my sins. At 11 years old, I walked an aisle to get to Jesus. But it was all just intellectual ascent. It was at this point that I can tell you that I was truly saved. And uh, tears of, of sorrow and mourning turned to tears of happiness. As I ran home, I didn't care if I was going to get beaten some more. I just wanted to run home and tell my parents what had happened. And you know what? My life wasn't the same after that. Because I had different desires altogether. Now, I wasn't perfect, Right? I didn't do everything perfectly. I still uh, fell and failed and sinned at times. But you could see a change in my direction. You could see a transformation in my life. And so I remember uh, God calling me to ministry. And I remember going out to Bible study and studying to prepare for ministry. And so my first ministry uh, as an intern after Bible college was to go back to my home church. And I remember the first thing that I did in my internship was to do VBS and children's ministry with my math teacher. 
And it was just a glorious time of ministry. She was just a wonderful woman of God. And I had such a great time. And I remember telling her, thank you for caring enough about me to confront me about my faith. I want to thank you for making me look at the tough questions. Because I really believe she was a big part of my change in my salvation experience. Thank you for caring enough about me. Sorry I egged your house, though. I'm really sorry about that. You know, this is the heartbeat of the book of James. James's epistle is all about the subject of genuine faith. Is your faith real? Is it genuine? Are you an authentic Christian? I want us to look at the context here. James was the half-brother of Jesus. We know that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And this was to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 7:14 that the Messiah would be virgin born, right? So we know that Jesus was special, but later Mary had natural children with her husband Joseph. And the Bible records the boys, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Now, James started out as a skeptic, right? The siblings, right, brothers and sisters, thought that Jesus was out of his mind when he started his messianic ministry. They were hostile to him. It wasn't until Jesus died and then rose again and that he appeared to, to many of his disciples, uh, to many, it wasn't until after the resurrection that they finally believed, and all of them did. As a matter of fact, in the book of Acts, in the upper room waiting at Pentecost, it was uh, all of them that came, uh, which shows that they were all believers, Well, James' life completely changes from that point on. History tells us that he becomes the lead pastor of the first church ever established, right? The Church of Jerusalem, where the apostles would follow Jesus' mandate to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Uh, James faithfully stayed in one place and led the Church of Jerusalem for 30 years through the trials and the persecutions and the changes uh, that got the, the, the gospel brought. So from hostile skeptic, he was transformed to foundational leader. He was the pillar of the church. As a matter of fact, this is interesting, James had a couple contemporary nicknames. Uh, he was called James the Righteous. And he was called that because of the godly way that he interacted with people who were Christians and also non-Christians. Not only that, but I love this nickname. He was called Camel Knees. Old camel knees. And it was because of the way that he prayed. And he had a habit, contemporaries say, in history, of coming into the temple every day. For those 30 years of ministry, every day he came into the temple and he prayed and interceded for the nation of Israel, that they would receive the Messiah. He was on his knees so much in prayer that they became hard and calloused like those of a camel. Isn't that great? That was the kind of person that James became. And James's epistle was written to the Jewish Christians. The Bible says in James uh, chapter 1, verse 1, that it was to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nations. James's epistle was written to Jewish Christians to encourage them to live out an authentic Christian life and to combat self-deception. Now, you might say, well, what is self-deception? Well, self-deception is believing a lie. It's very possible that you can be deceived into believing that you have genuine faith, that you are a Christian, that you are born again, 
you're a child of God, that you're saved, that you're on your way to heaven, and still be deceived, self-deceived, because you are not. You know, the question uh, you may have is, well, if self-deception is believing a lie, then I could be deceived and not even know it. And that is true, and that's why James administers a series of tests to see and evaluate whether your faith is genuine. Is it a true faith or is it a false faith? Is, is it a living faith or is it a dead faith? And we're going to look at some of these. Let's look at some that we've already studied. Pastor Wilson has done a great job uh, taking us through the book of James thus far. And I want us to just review just a little bit. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 13, we see the first test, the test of trials. What is your response to trials and tribulations in your life? Are you able to persevere and allow those trials and tribulations to strengthen your faith? Do you pray and ask God for wisdom and discernment in the midst of those things, or do you fall away? The next one, chapter 1, verses 13 through 18, is the second test, the test of temptation. How do you deal with temptation? Do you blame God when you're tempted? Or can you be thankful and grateful for his good and perfect gifts even when they're not visible, even when you don't see them in your life? Chapters, uh, chapter 1, 19 through 25 is the third test, the test of truth. What is your response to God's word? Do you obey God's word or do you disobey it? Do you give it a mere men, uh, uh, intellectual assent and say, yes, I believe God's word, but ignore it in your life? Or are you eager and open to apply its truth to your daily living? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 is the fourth test, the test of tendency. When you are at a crossroads of choosing God's way or the world's way, what is your track record in choosing? Do you choose favoritism? Do you choose greed? Do you choose immorality? Or do you follow the way of purity, God's way, the way of justice, the way of righteousness? You see, we can look at these tests and evaluate whether our faith is genuine. Now, I'm not saying that we can't fall or fail or sin sometimes. The Bible says that if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, right? When we sin, we need to go and confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We know that. But what I'm saying is that what is the overall fruit of your life? James is asking us to examine our lives to evaluate whether our faith is real. So this morning... We want to study the passage and ask three questions about our faith. Two negative ones and one positive one, all right? So the first one is, is your faith an empty claim? Is your faith an empty claim? Let's look in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims? Stop right there. James is saying anyone can claim something to be true. What, is, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? James is asking a rhetorical question where the answer is very obvious. It's no. Because anyone can claim that they possess genuine faith. The real question is can they back it up? James is saying, I want to see your deeds. I want to see your actions. I want to see your works that back your claim." James was addressing people who claimed to have faith in Jesus Christ, yet their lives showed, showed no evidence of that kind of faith. 
You see, you can profess saving faith without possessing saving faith, and that's a false faith. You can talk the Christian talk without living out a Christian walk. That's false faith. It's just an empty claim. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Here's what James is saying backs up if your, if your faith is genuine, and it's practical, and it's found in verse 15. Let's look at it. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Remember, James has given us a series of tests to see if our faith is genuine. The test of trials, the test of temptation, the test of truth, the test of of tendency. And here in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, is the fifth test, the test of tenderheartedness. What is your response to a person who is desperate and destitute, has no way to care for themselves, doesn't have adequate food, doesn't have adequate clothing, right? doesn't have adequate shelter, a home, a job? What is your response? If your response is shallow and superficial, if you can only wish them well without sacrificial service, then are you a child of God is what James is asking. Now, you might ask me, why is this test so important to show that I'm a child of God? Because this is the character of God. You see, God saw our fallen, broken, sinful destitution. He saw a mass of perdition headed to destruction. And so you know what God did? He left his glory and he entered into our fallen world. God saved us by his sacrifice on the cross. So God's character is tenderheartedness. We see it in his mercy, his grace, his compassion on how he dealt with the world and how he deals with us every day. You see, God sacrificially served us to meet our needs. And if you are a child of God, then you should look like your dad. I get this all the time. The older I get, the more people who know us say, you look just like your dad. And when I was young, I hated hearing that because I thought I was better looking than my dad, right? But the more I grow older, the more I see that I do have characteristics. I look like my dad. I have certain ways that I act like my dad. And I don't hate it anymore. Of course that's true because David Jung is going to look like Jude Jung. That's a natural thing. If we are the children of God, then we have the same character as that of our father. Tenderheartedness. Uh, evidenced in grace and mercy and service is how it should be. If we don't express that character, then we have to ask whether we possess that character. Hey, do you remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? We did a long series in Matthew, and it was fun. And Pastor Wilson did a great job in Matthew chapter 25 talking about the sheep and the goats. Let me kind of uh, wet your memory because I want you to know this, okay? So, In the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus divides uh, the sheep, those that have genuine faith, and the goats, those that don't, right? And he tells the sheep, come and take your inheritance in heaven. And this is what he says, because I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you visited me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison and you visited me. And the sheep are going to say to Jesus, when did we ever do those things? And Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of mine, you did for me. You see, James is referring to his older brother's parable. 
James is exactly referring to this, right? Some people can read this and misunderstand the parable that all these good deeds, right? Visiting, helping, clothing were the, one, were the things that uh, allowed the sheep to earn heaven. That's not what it's talking about. As a matter of fact, if you look at the gospel, never are we saved through our good works. So we understand that it's not about earning our way to heaven. The point of the parable is, do your deeds back your claim? If you have been a regenerated person, if you have saving faith, then these things, these deeds are going to ooze out of it. A mere profession of faith does not save. There must be a genuine possession of faith that will be shown by your deeds. And James says it this way in verse 17, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It is just an empty claim. The second point is, is your faith an empty confession? Is your faith an empty confession? Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Now, in order to understand this, let me unpack it a little bit by giving you a bit of background, right? Here, James is addressing Jewish Christians with a Jewish mindset, uh, with a shared Jewish culture. And here at this time, Jews grew up with a Judaism that by this time taught a sophisticated system of works-based righteousness. So that you had to follow laws and rules and practices and regulations that you had to do enough good stuff in order for you to finally be saved. You have to earn your way to God. As a matter of fact, Jesus uh, chastised the Pharisees for putting things, burdens on people's backs that they were not able to, to carry. This is what it was talking about. So imagine this overwhelming burden of works that the Jews felt like they had to follow in order to earn their salvation. Now, these Jewish people hear the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he came to fulfill the law to its utmost so that he could die on the cross to save you of something that you couldn't save yourself. He was here to save you, and salvation is not by deeds, it's by grace through faith alone. Salvation is not by works, but by faith alone. Imagine Jews who heard that and accepted it, right? It's like that burden was cut off and fell from your back. They felt a liberation and a freedom that they had never known before. And so that's why many Jews came to follow Jesus. But there were some Jews who embraced what they thought was the gospel. And they believed that faith alone was merely confessing a set of beliefs. That faith alone is merely adhering to doctrine and dogma. They misunderstood what faith alone is. They thought it meant that a faith that is alone. Faith that doesn't have to produce deeds at all. A faith that is simply believing in the right belief system. And that's where in verse 18, James structures an imaginary debate with these kind of people. And James starts by saying, let's say hypothetically, you have true faith and I have uh, deeds. James continues, then show me your faith without your deeds. You know, the New Living Translation uh, is a modern type of take on it. And I think it, it says it even better than what I just read to you in the NIV. This is how the New Living Translation says it. How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? 
That's what James is getting at. It is impossible to show me you have genuine faith without producing something I can see. In other words, how can you say that you have living faith without producing any fruit? You see, faith can't be seen without fruit. If it doesn't produce fruit, then it's dead. Does that make sense? You know, I have fruit trees at home, and uh, it's when we bought uh, our house that we came uh, as an inheritance, all these fruit trees, and I love them. We have an avocado tree, we have a tangerine tree, we have a lemon tree, and uh, it always brings about a lot of fruit. As a matter of fact, uh, I love our avocado tree because when it's in season, I can pick you know, 20 to 30 avocados in one sitting. And that's the worst thing to do, by the way, because I remember when we first got the house, I was so greedy that I would pick like 20 and they'd all ripen at the same time. And then I had a disaster on my hands, right? Because you have to eat all those 20 avocados. So I learned, of course, share it with family, share it with friends. You can't hog it all up. You can, you can only eat so much guacamole before, you know, it gets crazy, right? But I had all this fruit. But my favorite tree, when we first uh, bought the house and we uh, acquired these trees, was the apricot tree. Because it served the best, the sweetest apricots. And for the first uh, year or two, uh, it always came up with apricots. And I loved that tree. But you know what? After those two years, I'm sure I did something wrong uh, to it, but it, it, it didn't have any apricots anymore. As a matter of fact, it didn't have any leaves anymore. It didn't have anything anymore. And I remember, you know, every year we'd come out and there'd be no apricots. And I would say, you know what? We have to cut this thing down. It's dead. And my wife would say, no, let's keep it another season, right? Maybe apricots would show up. You know, let's, let's keep it. And I was thinking to myself, well, but, but there's no leaves on the tree. There's no buds. There's no apricots. And she'd say, ah, finally, we had to cut down the tree because there was no fruit. What good is a fruit tree without fruit? right? What good is a fruit tree if it doesn't show signs of life? That's what James is saying. And James concludes his thought by saying, you can try to show me your faith without deeds, but I will show you my faith by my deeds. Verse 19, let's look at it. You believe that there's one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. James continues his debate with this Jewish person and he begins by stating the Hebrew Shema, right? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 and 5. We know every Jewish person has memorized this when they were children. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. This is the fundamental theological truth every Jew would adhere to. You believe that there is one God. And here's what James is saying. If faith is confessing a set of doctrines... If faith is believing in the right belief system without any works, deeds, actions, without any produce, then guess what? Demons have that kind of faith. Have you ever thought about that? Demons have faith. There are no atheist demons in the world. Did you know that? There's no demons saying, hmm, I wonder if there is a God. I'm not sure. No, they know that there's a God. They understand that there's a God. As a matter of fact, demons have orthodox beliefs. They believe in one God. They believe that Jesus is Lord. They believe that Jesus came to this earth to save uh, humanity. They believe that Jesus is coming back. And if you look at the Gospels, anytime Jesus confronts demons, this is what they confess. But the difference is, even though demons have faith, 
their, won't, their faith won't save them. And they shudder at the thought. I shared with you my testimony. There was a time that I intellectually agreed with doctrine. I memorized Bible verses. I understood theology. I went to church, but there was no change in my life. There was no fruit. Why? Because I had a demon faith, and I didn't have real genuine faith. Genuine faith is not an empty claim. Genuine faith is not an empty confession. Then what is genuine faith? What does it look like? And here's my third point, and we'll end here. Is your faith a full-on commitment? James gives us two examples of genuine faith. Number one, Abraham. Let me read the passage. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. James is saying that Abraham was shown to be righteous by his actions, that Abraham's belief was vindicated by his deeds, that Abraham's faith was demonstrated by what he did. What did he do? Well, in Genesis chapter 22, we have the story that here God comes to Abraham and he says, offer your only son, the one that you love, on the altar as a sacrifice. Imagine how difficult this must have been for Abraham. And on top of all of it, it didn't make any sense. God hates human sacrifice. He's a holy God. It shows scripture after scripture that God doesn't approve of this kind of practice. Didn't make sense. God promised Abraham Isaac. He was the child of promise. At 75 years of age, God told Abraham, look at the stars of the sky. He says, this is how your descendants are going to be. I'm going to give you so many descendants that you won't, you, won't, you won't be able to imagine it or believe it. And he says, I'm going to do it through a son, a promised son, who is going to fulfill it, even in your old age, Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to give that to you. Well, they believed, and God gave them a son. His name is Isaac, which means laughter. They were, they were happy when he came. And now God is telling him something that he can't believe. What does he do? And here's the deeds. Abraham committed to obey God even when it didn't make sense. I'm going to trust God completely. I'm going to put it all on the line. And when he did, the Bible says that God provided a ram to be offered in Isaac's place. Perfect picture of what the Messiah would do one day right? That that was a picture, a messianic picture of what was to come. Abraham was tested with trials, temptation, uh, the truth of God's word, everything that James talks about, right? He was tested with those and he passes with flying colors. That's why we say that Abraham was a man of faith because we can see, right, based on the situation, what he did. You know, um, I don't know if you've been watching basketball but I've had such a great time watching uh, the basketball bubble. I watched the Mavs uh, play the Clippers, and I remember watching the game where Luka Doncic, a 21-year-old Slovenian, right, came and he hit the, a buzzer beater. And I remember just screaming. I, uh, my wife and daughter were in the house. Oh, no, no, my daughter was in the house, sorry. And she just, she thought I was going crazy. I was just screaming. And I'm not even a Mavs fan. I'm a, I'm a Lakers fan. 
But I just saw the greatness of Luca. And I remember after that, like the next day, uh, everybody was talking about it in the sports world. And many of them said the same thing. They said, we knew Luca was great, but he needed a Luca moment. We knew he was going to be great, right? But he needed to uh, not have Kristaps Porzingis play because he's out, he's hurt. That's the second best player. He needed to actually have uh, an ankle uh, injury where he wasn't, completely right and he needed to be able to play the best team in the NBA and Luca did all those things and he won. Luca's greatness right is measured by what we saw. We can say oh Luca's great but no I was able to witness that Luca was great. See that's the point of this whole thing. Let me give you the second one and that is Rahab. Verse 25 in the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Now, Joshua chapter 2 kind of gives us, uh, you know, what James is talking about. Here, God had given or promised the land of Canaan to the Israelites. Their job now was to go and appropriate the land. So, Israel sent spies. The spies were found out, and so they hid with Rahab, who was a prostitute. Rahab... Uh, in Joshua 2, tells the spies that they have heard of the God of Israel. And it was at this point that Rahab commits her life and says, this is the one true God, right? And so what she did, and here's her deeds, she hid those men in her home, and she sent her own people in a different direction so the spies could return safely and share what they had learned about Jericho. You see, Rahab completely committed to trust God completely. She put it all in line, right? She said, even though I'm a foreigner, even though, you know, uh, uh, I'm an enemy of the Israelites, I am going to, by faith, trust in the God who I believe is real. And because she put it on the line, and she'd never met God before, she's only heard, she'd only heard of God, because she put it on the line, Israelites adopted her, right, as, as, peop- as, uh, as the people of God. And guess what? We look at the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospels, and we find Rahab in the genealogy. Isn't that beautiful? Not only that, but Hebrews 11 uh, talks about her being in the hall of faith, just like Abraham. Now, I want you to notice how different these two examples are. Abraham was a Jew. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a patriarch. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was moral in his past. Rahab was immoral in her past. Abraham was noble. Rahab was an outcast. Abraham was a friend of God. uh, Rahab was a Canaanite enemy. See, why would James use such extremes in illustrating faith? Why use two polar opposite people to illustrate what genuine faith looks like? And it's so every, and it's because everyone falls somewhere in between. You know, why would God use, why would James, excuse me, use such extremes to include every believer in the spectrum? You see, we can be in different social strata. We can have different cultural experiences. We can experience different circumstances. We can be at different points in our Christian journey of faith. And all of us are. We're very diverse. But the one thing that we have in common is genuine faith, an absolute commitment to God where you trust him, all your hopes, all your dreams, all your ambitions. 
even your eternity. And the Bible tells us that God will honor a faith that trusts him completely and puts it all on the line. Let me ask you this morning, where is your faith? What does it look like? Where is it going? How is it working? Your faith is the most important thing in your relationship with God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for reminding us once again how beautiful the gospel is, that it is by grace through faith alone, not of our works, that we enter into a relationship with you. But we also know that once that spirit, that new regenerate heart is given us, that we are to grow in faith. And so it is a faith that is not alone, but that it produces fruits, that it produces works. Father, I ask that everyone hearing would examine their hearts to find, is their faith genuine? Is it growing? It may not be perfect, but is it growing? Or Lord, is it just mere intellectual assent? Is it just merely confessing empty things, claiming empty things. We ask that you would allow our hearts to be searched by your Holy Spirit, and we ask that we would once again make the right decisions. Pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.